This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Welcome back into the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. A professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. All right, first things first, you will notice today is not Friday. Today is Saturday, which is a day after this podcast usually comes out. And I'm just going to plead stupid this week. Uh, I was sick. Uh, I I caught a cold at some point at the tail end of our trip to Charleston with Ball State men's basketball last week. Um, Did not feel good doing the game on Sunday when Ball State beat Appalachian State. And uh, and then Monday, like full blown, all I ate was jello. And then Tuesday, same thing, although I had to call a football game, uh, which was hilarious when my voice cracked on a touchdown because I had no voice. Um, So that was a thing that happened. And then Wednesday uh, was back in bed. And then Thursday uh, started to feel a little bit better and uh, back in the swing of things. But like, so I hadn't been at work for the most part, like all week. And then, of course, it's Thanksgiving and I just forgot it was Friday. And I'm 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 shopping on Black Friday uh, yesterday as you're listening to this and uh, it still never clicked and I got a text from my dad at like four in the afternoon that goes hey no podcast today and I went what do you mean he goes well it's Friday I was like yeah yeah I guess it is totally blanked uh, it's just been a weird week that way so uh, thanks for bearing with me and uh, checking us out here on Saturday morning this week uh, my name is Joel Gadet. if you hadn't figured that out already uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joel Godet uh, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T or you can shoot me an email uh, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at bsu.edu. Our guest on this week's podcast, uh, last week we had Doug Sherman, who was one of the ESPN voices for the Charleston Classic uh, that Ball State was in last week with Virginia Tech and Alabama and Wichita State and Purdue. Uh, This week we have Jordan Burnfield, who was the other ESPN play-by-play announcer um, that was at the Charleston Classic. And and Jordan and I go back quite a ways. Uh, He was a couple of years older. A couple? One or two years older than I was in college and his career path has been interesting because he did not get into play-by-play immediately and he'll give you the whole rundown of it I won't spoil it Uh, but again as we say so often on this podcast he took a road less or previously not traveled uh, in this industry so uh, interesting perspective from Jordan both about how he got to the network level but also we get into some intricate stuff as far as voice lessons and honing your instrument and uh, you know like personal life things about being a broadcaster and balancing all of that and on that note uh, this is the first edition of the podcast that has a broadcaster's wife in it Uh, Deanna Burnfield will be with us on this episode of the podcast. So uh, a couple different perspectives this week. Really fun conversation. I'm stoked for you to hear it. Uh, so stick around because Jordan Burnfield is with us this week on PXP Cast from ESPN and Big Ten Network and NBC Sports Chicago. 
Usually I say we'll just start this on your answer, but I feel like we could just go here and I could save myself recording an introduction. Either way, we'll see how this goes. Jordan Burnfield joins us. We're sitting here over a bottle of Dasani and a glass of wine um, <laughs> with our first live studio audience as well. Jordan's wife is here, so hopefully this goes well and they're still together at the end of the podcast. <laughs> um, we'll be here all week. Yeah. Um, what's going on with you? Like, tell me, your, your story is wild because we always say on this that there is no one way to get anywhere in this business. Everyone carves out their own path. And you're a guy who was working studio radio doing updates and now here you are like two years later doing major college sports on major television networks um so it's a podcast as long as you need uh give me the the long and short of what your decision was in terms of how you were going to attack this and uh how you made it work for yourself it is interesting how everybody has a different way of doing this and i think for me when i was in college, I always knew that I wanted to work in Chicago. That was kind of a goal of mine, but also a goal that I think was made because I didn't really understand exactly what I wanted to do in the business. And I think that as I went through college and got experience doing a lot of different things in different disciplines and media, what I learned was that play-by-play was what I loved doing the most. The problem, obviously, for young play-by-play guys is where do you go? And when you get to some small town doing small town radio or television play-by-play, while that's great for experience, can you ever get out? Yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> I don't mean you. <laughs> but that's that's always the fear. You know, when, when I was in college, I was thrilled to get the Auburn Double Days play-by-play gig because it was one that a lot of Syracuse kids have gotten. It was attainable for me. I don't think I was very good at the time, but I was able to get that opportunity and doing the games all that summer was really helpful for me. But in addition to doing play-by-play, which I really loved the actual games, the rest of it was hard. I mean, it was not... uh, It was not easy, and it was very tiring, and you inevitably are doing media relations, and you're cooking hot dogs at kids' camps, and you're pulling tarp, and you're working 21 hours a day, every day, for six months. And I, when you're 22 years old, it's like, okay, fine, I'm going to do that because this is great, and I'm working in play-by-play, but I didn't think that was a sustainable career. I thought maybe I could do that for a couple of years, but eventually I was going to burn out, and I love sports and I love play-by-play and so I thought I got to find a real job I mean so I guess for me it was like the recession hit in 2008 when we when I got out of school and no one was hiring anywhere and so I thought maybe if I can just get a job working in broadcasting in a major market knowing that there's a recession that if I could ascend in some way in that market it might give me the credibility where one day if I went to an ESPN or a Big Ten network in one of these places, they wouldn't laugh at me. You know, because you used to hear these stories, right, about how guys would bring their tape to the winter meetings and it would be on a CD and they would take your CD and if they didn't like it, they'd throw it out the window, right? You used to hear these stories all the time. Coasters for days. Right. So, like, I didn't want to be the person that at 27 was working in market number 325 doing games but 
to no one and and for no one to consume it and for no way to really move up realistically. So it just sort of worked out that I was doing a lot of Chicago radio that wasn't play-by-play. But while I was doing all that, and that was the most visible work I was doing, I was doing a lot of play-by-play on the side. You know, I was doing play-by-play at UIC, doing women's basketball and volleyball, and then I was uh, doing high school sports in and around the Northwest Indiana and Chicago area. So like anyone that knew me in Chicago, you know, the average listener would know me as a guy who was hosting a lot of Cubs post games or pregames, or they would know me as the guy that did the Northwestern pre and post game. But, you know, there's a lot of small companies around the area that knew me as somebody that wanted to do play-by-play. So eventually I just got to the point where I had done enough games as a side thing that I thought, realistically, if I sent this to an ESPN, that they wouldn't throw my tape in the garbage. And after a couple of years of trying, they, they didn't, and they offered me opportunities. And so it just got to the point where I felt like this is what I have to do because this is what I always wanted to do, but I just took a roundabout way of getting there. Let's talk about those beginning play-by-play opportunities um, because I think there are a lot of people that listen to this that – take a similar approach where they, they they will put themselves in a place and you just send out those, in some respects, blanket emails. Like, hi, I'm John Smith. Do you have games? Let me do games. <laughs> like, I don't know what I can really bring to you, but I'm going to say a lot because that's what I need to say for you to hire me. Um, when you're in Chicago, how did you go about reaching out to people to say, hi, I'm Jordan. I'm here. I want to do play-by-play. Let me do UIC basketball. Um, and how did you get those people to, to say yes? Because like I get emails all the time, too. It's like, yeah. hey, can I do Ball State women's basketball? I'm like, no, we got a guy, but yeah. thanks. <laughs> right. um, how, how did you get enough people to say yes to put together enough things? Yeah, so um, when I got home from Syracuse after I did the Double Days job in 08, I sent my tape to probably 100 small you know, minor league baseball teams or small colleges looking for work. They were all mostly, hey, you know, you sound good, but we're not hiring, or this is an internship, or we can't pay you what is even livable. So it was not realistic for me to move to one of these places. I mean, I remember there was a job opening in Vermont in 2008 where they wanted, it was originally a full-time play-by-play gig for basketball and minor league baseball. They pulled the full-time and they wanted to hire me anyway for a three-year deal for 8000 a year. I applied for that, too, at one yeah. point, yeah. Right. And our friend Alistair Ingram eventually took it, and he right. now has it as a full-time deal. Yeah. Right, but he got a full-time <laughs> job. Yeah. And so, like, my parents were saying, oh, we'll, we'll help you. You know, if you make 8000 a year, it's fine. Like, we'll get you an apartment. I was like, yeah, but I'll be 26 with a net worth of zero. So, like, I can't do this job. Um, so I applied for a baseball job at UIC, which was free, no money, but I thought I live at home, I can drive to the games, they weren't traveling me, so it was only home games, and I was 22, so like the money wasn't really that important yet, and uh, the person who was the voice of UIC at the time was a Syracuse guy a few years older than us, and so he hired me, I honestly think because I went to Syracuse, I think I had no other qualifications to him other than, hey, he's a Syracuse guy, I'm going to help him out. So well, Syracuse this, Mafia strikes I was again. saying this will piss people off, but yeah. like that's part of the benefit of, yes. of why we did what we did. Like, <laughs> right. I guess we apologize, but... Not really. Sorry, not half the people just turned this podcast off, but please go yes. on. Yeah. Right, they're all throwing up <laughs> listening to this podcast. 
Well, no, I mean, it, 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 it helped. Uh, I think it really that's what got me the job. And so when I did the baseball, um, I ended up doing women's basketball and, and some softball and some volleyball. So I kind of had that base there. So then when they needed a – so Dave Wills, who is the voice of the Tampa Bay Rays, was doing the TV – for UIC when I was doing all this other stuff on radio. And when he got, because he was doing White Sox pre and post in Chicago, when he left, I knew everybody at UIC. So I said to them, I realize I'm young, but I know your team, and I've been around it, and I, they all knew me. I said, why don't you give me a shot and let me do the games? I mean, at this point, it was only like four games a year, so it's not like they were making a huge commitment. It was just, can you, you know, can we do this? Okay. They hired me for that. And then in addition, through the radio stuff I did at UIC, Loyola had an opening to do a volleyball game. This is probably 2008 or 9, you know, right out of school. And I was like, sure. I went to an old alumni gym, which has been knocked to the ground since. And I did this volleyball match because I did some volleyball for UIC and they knew I would do it. And so then I started to make connections in there. So then when they were going to put games on Lakeshore Public Television, which was obviously not going to be a big audience, um, I applied for the job, and they were willing to give me the opportunity. And Jeff Dickerson and I worked together, and it was really good for me to get the jobs I have now because even though it was lower budget and nobody was watching, it was perfect because it was lower budget and nobody was watching. Yes, because I could screw up and I could figure out how to do this the right way. Because, you know, when you're in college and you're learning how to do radio play-by-play, there's certain disciplines that are so ingrained in you that it's very different from doing television, as any of us know, that do this job. And I had to figure out sort of what to dial back from and also consult people I knew who are mentors and do this. So like my connection base kind of helped me get it. But then doing this for, you know, five years or whatever it was that I that And I still do those games for Loyola and UIC now, you know, on NBC Sports Chicago. But it kind of gave me the experience where I was ended up doing enough games that I could learn what to do enough to the point where I felt like I could send a tape to a network and not have them laugh at me. What'd you screw up and uh, what'd you work on to most improve in those years? So when you first start doing television, the first thing everyone tells you is, well, it's not radio. You can't talk as much. You can't call as much of the action. And when I'm doing radio, I'm so focused on being able to locate because I think for any listener, it's very hard to follow a play if I don't know where you are, right? I mean, this is basic 101 of play-by-play, but... If I'm listening to a basketball game and a guy has the ball and I don't know where he is and he passes to somebody else and I don't know where he is, I just think locators are so important within the description of a play on radio. But on TV, you obviously don't have to do that stuff. And it took me a while to figure out how to caption things in the right way, where to put stories, and how to allow myself to kind of erase what my instinct was to try to call every single basket because they can see it. And I don't have to do that. And when you do football, not to have to describe every yard line they're at because they can see it. And just to be able to kind of economize your words in a way where you are enhancing what's happening in front of you 
but not overpowering it. And honestly, one of the things that the networks tell everyone now is to not talk too much. And there will be plenty of times, even though I'm doing games now on the network level where you know, a producer will tell us after the game, we really liked that layout where I said nothing. But that's, they want you to convey to the listener what it feels like to be there. And radio is totally different in that way. But television, is, is a, it's about the visual, obviously. So that was hard to adjust to at first. And when I watched, I, I was, you know, we recently moved and I was going through my old stuff and I popped in one of my DVDs from one of the first TV games I did. I was awful. I mean, I don't even know how, I, they should burn this tape so that there is no evidence of this ever occurring, but it- It's called YouTube. Yeah. Um, but, but what I learned from watching it back was listening to a person who was disciplined in radio who was talking just way too much. And so um, that is, I think, the area where everyone screws up at first, especially if you work in your college radio station and you want to do television. Though now I think it's different because the students that are, I mean, this is gonna make me sound 100 years old. In our day, we didn't have like, we didn't have TV opportunities to call games. Like, we have carts. Right, there wasn't, that wasn't a thing. So like now these kids are doing Student U on Big Ten Network and they're doing all these things where like, they're getting opportunities to call games on TV. So they're way better, way better than we were at this stuff at 22, 23. Um, but that is definitely an adjustment you have to make. I want to come back to uh, fit in the, the physical dynamics of calling a game on television, but I want to finish up on the, the track of how you got to, to where you were because you did something that was um, scary, I think, for a lot of people in terms of you had a full-time job. You're working at... Entercom was it? Is it Entercom? Before it was Entercom. Okay, so yeah. but six seventy to score in Chicago, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you decide, you know what? I'm done. I'm good. I'm going to leave my full time job, and I'm going to do this play by play thing, and hopefully, I get enough to make this worthwhile. Um, take me through that decision, uh, how difficult it was to make that leap of faith, and why it was beneficial for you to make that leap of faith. Yeah, I mean, it, that was a hard decision. I mean, I I can't sit here and say that it was anything other than very mentally stressful um, because I think one of the things that a lot of people in our business will say is that if you have a job you have to keep your job because if you don't have a job you can't get a job right and how many times have you heard people say that and so I was doing the full-time job at the score and then additionally working these games but what ended up happening was it's just sort of funny how the business works, right? I, you know, I was working at WGN for six years. I was full-time there. You know, the sports station that they started goes under. I was sort of in a Cosmo Kramer situation where I was barely working for the station, but somehow lost my job anyway. And I... You got severance, though, for that, though, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I did. It wasn't enough, but uh, it's radio, remember? Um, More than you were probably making in the first place. Yeah, right. Um, but so, you know, I'm obviously looking for work. So when I got the job at the score, you know, I, I started doing kind of midday and afternoon updates and, and the Saturday Inside the Clubhouse Baseball show with Bruce Levine. Like, that was my original position. And then they also wanted me to apply for the morning update anchor job which I was not doing initially and then they sort of eliminated 
the position that was when Mark Rohde became the pre- and post-game guy for the Cubs, and then I just moved. They just sort of combined positions because this is what they do in radio. Um, and I ended up doing the morning drive in addition to my show, and then I was doing fill-ins on pre- and post-game with the Cubs. I mean, I covered um, several post-games when they were in the World Series run and covered the parade. I mean, there was a lot of great things at the score. What became difficult was, at the same time, all of a sudden ESPN is starting to give me more work and I'm starting to get some work at Big Ten Network and I'm starting and I'm still doing UIC and Loyola and now my schedule is growing and growing and growing and I'm doing morning radio and it became just incredibly exhausting because you know you're up at three in the morning every day to do radio and then you come home and you're prepping all day for a game and then you do the game and it's over at 9.30 at the, and the earliest I'm home is 10 o'clock at night and then I'm getting up four hours later and doing it all over again. It's just, for a while, I was like, well, I have to do this because it, you know, everything in, as all the, the sum of all of it was good for me because it was a lot of exposure, but I don't think I could have done it for years and years and years. It wasn't a, it wasn't a long-term situation. It was sort of untenable. And even though my wife is, is sitting here, I, I mean, she would corroborate this. I said to her, you know, I don't think I can keep doing these things together and be sane because it was just so much. And I said, if you think it's crazy for me to quit, then you tell me and I won't quit and I will keep doing this. And she was the one that said, no, if, if this is too much for you and you're not happy burning both ends of the candle like this, then you should pursue what you want to do. So thanks to her, I really kind of had the courage, I guess, to say like, listen, I can't do both. I tried to, you know, negotiate a way to maybe do uh, afternoons or middays during my busiest seasons so that it was, but understandably they wanted me in the morning. I had a good thing going with the guys and, you know, I really enjoyed working with them, truly. I mean, they're, they're guys that I consider friends, and it wasn't like anything personal. It was just how you can't realistically be good at all your work if you're on in three hours or four hours of sleep every single night all the time. And so I knew that play-by-play -play was what I wanted to do, so I figured I'm either going to do this and give all of my effort to it, or I'm going to be something worse than that, and I won't get more of it. So that's really what it came down to. Okay, so this is the first time we've done a podcast like this, so I have the fun perspective that I can literally walk to the other side of the table and now get, like, death eyes at me. Okay, so, <laughs> Deanna, your husband decides that he's going to quit his job and, and venture this play-by-play -play thing. Uh, what goes through your mind, and, and how did this all play out? Wow, I'm so excited and honored to be a part of this. Yeah, thanks for being here, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for including me. So for me, I'm just there and I see it every day, right? Not only see it, but I feel it because we're sharing a bed and his alarm goes off at 3 or 3.30 a.m. every morning and I have a more typical office job. I work a lot of hours, but I'm not waking up then. And just to see over time the toll that it was taking on him to have such a strenuous schedule that's starting that early in the morning, I would kind of roll over and like grunt and be like, have a good day, <laughs> knowing that it probably wasn't going to be a good day because even though he was doing things that he loved, 
it was just too much of it. Um, and it, it, it clearly wasn't sustainable. And I don't, I don't think it is for anybody. And there are some of those superhumans that can just get by on three or four hours of sleep a night. And they're incredible, but it's just not him. Um, and I knew it wasn't me. And I knew all along where his strengths lie and what his goals were. And they were in that play-by-play world. And so we kind of came to a point where we said, well, you've got both of these things going on right now. One of them you like a lot. You like the people you work with. It's great exposure for you in Chicago. But one of them is ultimately what you want to do. You're not doing it full-time enough quite yet to say, you know, let's just take the leap of faith. But let's just take the leap of faith because otherwise, to Jordan's point, you're not going to get more of that if you're not able to give your all to it. And so I think, uh, yeah, he, it, it was a tough decision for sure. But I think it was um, the right one, and I think it's kind of the, the fruits of his labor are paying off now and hopefully can, will continue to. But, yeah, it, it's tough. But nobody, nobody can work like that 20 hours a day. It's not sustainable. Yes, we've had the relationship talk on this podcast many times as well with how <laughs> difficult it is to sustain one in this industry also. Yeah. So all that being said, uh, what do you think when you meet this guy who goes, I work 21 hours a day, and, uh, like, sometimes I travel – and, uh, you know, kind of deal with it because that's just how this whole situation goes. Well, I think most of my friends would describe me as incredibly independent and stubborn and my own woman, too. So for me, it actually wasn't daunting at all. Um, And I also work in an industry that's kind of high stakes, commercial real estate, very uh, all commission based, very sales oriented. Um, So I get it for sure. So, no, it wasn't, it wasn't daunting to me. I think it's, I think it's exciting. And honestly, I, I always say this to my friends, but I think it's pretty rare that you meet somebody who is actually doing for their job what they've grown up their entire life saying they want to do with their life. You know, it's like the kids that grow, you know, when they're five or seven years old, they say, I want to be president or I want to be an astronaut. Um, like Jordan, well, maybe he would have said, I want to be Greg Maddox. And he didn't quite make it there. Um, and he always jokes he couldn't pitch over like 70 or 75 miles an hour. Well, neither could Greg, so it really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the next best thing was, if he wasn't going to be pitching um, in the major leagues, that he would be calling games. Um, and, and that's what he's doing. And so I think it's just absolutely incredible that he's actually playing this out in real life and he gets paid to do what he loves. And um, so didn't daunt me at all. I think it's awesome. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, cool. I'm going to go sit yeah. down again because that, that hurt my knees for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that was pretty good. I didn't know she was going to be on, but I think now it's a bonus. People uh, will get – I mean, they'd rather hear from her than me. So. Just, you know, the rate gets doubled. It yeah. comes out of the budget. <laughs> yeah. um, so you, you make this ultimate decision, and I know you said basically like you just went around and just met with people. Yeah. Um, what are the questions you ask when you meet these people? Because like I always have that thought too. It's like you need to get yourself in front of decision makers. Yeah. Well, once you're in front of a decision maker, other than being like, hey, so what do I have to do to work for you? Yeah. Um, what are the questions that are important to ask to those people that, A, you learn something from them, but B, you also ingratiate yourself to them? Well, I think you have to be willing to take feedback from people and not just say that you're willing to take feedback, because I think most people will say that they want feedback from people, but then they find it offensive when people have feedback that you don't want to hear. Help with you. What do you know? You, yeah. just, you just work for ESPN. Yeah. Right. I mean, but I think that you have to be willing to take feedback. I mean, I, I've said to bosses before, and it's sort of, I, I mean, I'm sort of glib when I say it, but I think it's true. I mean, they have to like it. So whatever I'm doing, 
if they don't like it, they're not going to give me more work. And it really comes down to that. You know, I think a lot of times in our business, people tie themselves in knots with all these mental gymnastics about what will get you hired and what words you have to say and exactly the timing and all this. Like, I'm not saying that these things aren't important to a degree they are because there's obviously certain qualities that the typical network level broadcaster has, right? But I think more than that, they have to like you, they have to respect you, they have to think that you work hard, they have to think that you care. And I believe that if you can get in front of somebody and show your personality and show that you're somebody that cares about what you do and you're passionate about it and that you're willing to take feedback from people and that you want to get better at it, um, that that resonates with people because, you know, I think sometimes too, especially when you get to a network level, it's like people think, oh, well, I'm working for this company or that company. I don't need feedback because evidently what I'm doing is good enough because I've gotten this job or that. Like, if you think that way, you might, if you're really that good, you might keep whatever job you have, but you're probably in the minority unless you're really, really that outstanding. I mean, I really think any executive on any level is going to respond positively if you show that you're willing to make the investment in yourself but additionally you're willing to be you're willing to be malleable with some of the things that you might think but they think that you can do it another way and do it better and do it the way that they want it because i think from my experience like all all these companies are very similar in what they want there might be a couple of stylistic things that are more true to the sort of Fox broadcaster versus the ESPN broadcaster versus the NBC broadcaster, but I think, or the CBS or whatever, but like they're all generally the same kinds of things. And so I think, honestly, that broadcasting is a hard skill, but it's also not rocket science and more of this is selling you as a person than it is anything else because what it comes down to is can you speak in front of a camera or can you speak while there's action going on or can you speak while you're on a microphone on radio like this isn't this isn't splitting the atom and so what sets you apart from somebody else is ultimately going to be work ethic and your ability to show that you're a person or a, or a quote-unquote brand, I hate to put it that way, that is, that is worth investing in. I mean, that's really what it comes down to more than anything else. So I think getting in front of people and being able to show why you're worth it to them um, is paramount. So you work for, obviously, a couple different networks uh, doing some Big Ten stuff, so you get the Fox eyes on you and you do the ESPN stuff as well. Um, and I know you said that at the end of the day, there is kind of a baseline of what everybody's looking for but do you get the sense and the feedback that you get that, um, and we said this to Doug Sherman on the podcast last week, like is there a, is there a, an ESPN guy or a Fox guy? Like do you, do you hear different things from different sides kind of about what different networks look for? Um, I think it's hard to say because I think at Fox, they, my experience is that there is a little more leeway in terms of like personality stuff. Um, I think you just see that with like FS1 and kind of the way that the brand is more um, personality know, driven. driven. Yeah. yeah. So I think that it's more it's more about that. I think, but at the same time, there are certain basic truths of like of network play by play where 
you know, they don't want you talking too much and they want you to lay out and they want you to do all these certain things that within television play-by-play works universally no matter what network you're at. I think at ESPN, there's definitely an emphasis on being willing to put the broadcast above yourself. And not that it isn't true everywhere else, because like I said, these all sort of blur together. But I, I have definitely felt that that is a point of emphasis. Um, and also storytelling. Um, being willing to find, do that extra Google search or that extra reporting where you go talk to somebody and being willing to kind of unearth these cool stories. I mean, honestly, when I think about the way that I kind of do things, it's more, I think about like the average person who's watching that's not a big sports fan, right? Like they just happen to, because if they're a huge Ball State fan or a huge Appalachian State fan, they're going to watch us tomorrow, right? Like they're tuning in. But the person that happens to stumble on our game... Admittedly small demographic, by the way, but yeah. <laughs> okay, but if that person stumbles on our game, I want to tell some story or some nugget or tidbit where they remember that when they turn it off. And not that it has to be some like incredibly heavy story that resonates forever, but, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that this guy you know, went, on, went to this place and, and worked with children on the, at this camp. Or, well, I don't know. But the point is, like, if you can somehow find a way to humanize people in a way that resonates, I think that that's, that is powerful to a viewer or a listener. And I, I used to teach a play-by-play class at one of the local colleges in Chicago, and I used to tell the kids, like, if, if you can do that little extra work and you can tell one of those stories, it makes the broadcast way, way, way better. So... I think the criticism of people that come from Syracuse, and like we wax all the time about how how great it is, but um, I feel like there are many situations where people say we're all the same, like we're all robots. We're just we literally just like they open the door and Joe Lee pushes a new one of us out. <laughs> yeah. um, how did you go about? And to an extent, they're right. Like we're all yeah. trained a certain way, yeah. and then we find ourselves beyond that. Um, how did you go about finding? that personality and finding a way to make yourself different and attractive to people at higher levels so that you don't just get categorized on the heap of he's just another one of the of the machine i think it's a, that's a great question seriously because when i started doing this i think i was trying to be what i thought you were supposed to be and i think a lot of the guys that start doing this that is what they do they they and I don't bl- I don't blame them for that. I'm, I'm this is not me trying to criticize them because I I get the the mentality or the motivation because that's what I did truly. Um, you think that there are certain things that you have to do to be on these games and that if you don't follow the checklist that you will not do them. And I think that I got that like you got that from working at WAER and like basically like the Ten Commandments of. WAER broadcaster. If you don't say snap before the play, you can't be on the air. Right. Yeah. Like, there are certain things that we learned that, you know, when uh, our sports director, Ryan Messick, who is a good friend of mine, who I care about dearly, would, like, hammer these things in my head. And he was right. And they are right. However, when you get to doing television, if you're just the same robot cookie-cutter guy... Um, 
you you will not take the next step. You might get a few games a year because they need somebody who can do a milk toast broadcast. But I remember sitting in a meeting once um, with one of my bosses, and he said, "Who are the broadcasters you like to listen to?" And I listed off some of them that I like, and one of them is Jason Benetti, who's a friend of ours and has been a great mentor and friend to me, and you know, Adam Amin, and um, you know, there's so many of these guys. Just labeling all the people from Chicago, <laughs> not just the Chicago, but like you know, guys that are friends of mine who yeah, I sure. think are really good, yeah. right? So like, um, but you know, there there were several. Uh, Kevin Harlan is somebody who I really like, um, and and so then my boss said, "Well, what do all these people have in common?" And I was like, they are unique. They have interesting personalities. Like Adam does all those funny things where like he's eating food during games and like uh, Jason is hysterical and has his like oh, his own wit with stuff. And you know, like Kevin Harlan, like when he's making fun of the guys that run on the field and he's doing like descriptive play by play. He will never live that down. Yeah. Like those things are, are like you remember that because it's funny. And like I have, I think, sort of this quirky kind of personality that at first, I was very afraid to show any of because I was like, you have to make sure that, you know, with five on the shot clock, you mention that because it's at the end and, you know, you're all buttoned up. But then now I feel like I'm, I don't know if I'm too loose, but I feel like I'm just more like me, which is sort of, I don't know, just like willing to mix it up with people. And I feel like it's entertaining. Like we, you know, Corey, Corey Alexander and I just last night had, we showed this Purdue fan that was wearing this blazer that was covered in Purdue peas and had, he had a Carson Edwards t-shirt with his face on it. And we were joking about this guy for half the game and then he came up to me afterwards and was like thanks for making us famous and we're basically making fun of him for 15 minutes but it you know like that's the kind of stuff that i think that somebody watching you know like they're like oh this is fun i'm gonna stay with this game and obviously you have to toe the line of being serious enough that it that you're not making fun of the broadcast because like there's obviously people invested in in this game i don't mean necessarily financially although they are um but you know like they're taking the time to watch this so you know you have to take it seriously but at the same time it's entertainment and you have to you have to be willing to have fun and you have to be willing to poke fun at yourself and you have to be willing to be just more loose about stuff and if you are so tight and serious which is what i was i think at first um you don't you won't excel because I think that the bosses have the same reaction, right? Like if they're watching and they get a laugh out of something and they think something you did worked, then I think that's going to resonate with them. And I think it's easy to get caught up in the, like, this possession is, a, is an important possession. We have to talk about the game. And always we have to talk about the game. And like, we can divert to talk about this thing over here. <laughs> that guy's got a funny sweatshirt, but back to the possession. Yeah. Um, how do you find the the middle ground of physically calling a game while also mixing in those stuff that there are those things that will keep somebody interested who just doesn't care otherwise. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I think that in saying everything that I just said, the biggest caveat is that if you one, if you're not funny and you think you are, that's bad. 
And I think a lot of people... Shit, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, like, I think a lot of people think that they're funny, and they're not funny, and I don't think that I'm that funny, but I think I can be funny. And so, like, I think that I know when I am being funny and when I'm not. Your wife is dying, by I know, the way. So. But, like, I, but, but, but I know that my, my shtick cannot be to just, like, make jokes. Like, that's not going to work out for me. So, like, I have to play off of something that's funny or, you know, find something situationally funny. But I think that, you know, you have to be... I think it doesn't work when someone is always trying to be one thing, right? So, like, if you're always trying to be the funny guy... That can be grading just as much as, you know, if you're always trying to be like the Tom Rinaldi serious guy, that could also be potentially, you know, rub somebody the wrong way. So, like, if you have to sort of find the balance of, you know, not trying to be too one thing. Like, I grew up loving listening to Pat Hughes, who does Cubs Radio, and one of the things that I think he is as brilliant as anyone who's ever done it at doing is that he is a great, serious play-by-play guy who can give you not only the nuts and bolts, but great description, and know, you know exactly what's happening at all times. But he also has made me laugh so hard in the car that I am crying laughing. Like, that ability is, is difficult to have, but he knows how to use it at the right times and obviously when Ron Santo was alive and the two of them had this like back and forth thing, it was it was like the ultimate of radio because like even in the most intense Cubs game when in the years where they were good, when the two of them were together, which frankly wasn't a lot, but when they were good, um, it just made you want to listen. And, you know, it makes you want to be engaged. And I think that that's like Jason Benetti is so good at that. Like Jason can can bring the drama of like a big moment in a White Sox game but then also be the guy that does some like hilarious Sox math question and like <laughs> so I'm laughing. Prize shelf. All you want is the prize shelf. I, I know like sometimes I'll text him during the game and be like what do I have to do to get the thing off the prize shelf? He'd be like win Sox math. Well he's right. Um, but no I mean it's like those are the things like if you can mix it up and the timing of it is good I at least know, as a not-that-funny person, that the timing of being funny is what makes things fun. So um, your wine glass is almost done, and your wife's is almost done, and she flew down here to not listen to this, uh, but spend time with you in a no, cool I'm place. Fun. I'm here. So, yeah, um, but I, I do yeah. want to ask you about something that I know you've been through, um, that I've gone through, um, that I know a lot of people ask about, and we talk about sometimes on this podcast. Um, you and I are both from the same school of uh, we don't sound like... Uh, the voice of God. Like, we both have, um, we both have very... The everyman voice. Yeah, like, we sound like normal people. Yeah. And, like, the, one of the very early criticisms I got was, like, you're going to have to change your voice. Like, you're going to have to alter the way you talk on air a little bit. Not so that you sound like Joe Broadcaster, but so that you sound like a broadcaster. Um, how did you approach that? I know you got lessons um, from somebody quite far away. Yeah. Um, what was that process like for you, and how do you feel it benefited you now that you look at it in hindsight? Yeah, well, now that I've had this glass of wine, I'm more uh, <laughs> open to talking about it, I guess, because it was something I didn't really want to talk about because I felt like it was, in some way, I, I used to think it was like it, w- it was a it was a negative against me or something. But I think that if you want to be good at something, you have to invest in all aspects of what you do to be good at it. And, you know, I listened back to my old tapes in college and, you know, I was very nasally sounding, very high voiced. Um, It was not that that was my natural voice because it's not. 
Um, but it was that I really didn't know how to breathe, which sounds ridiculous. But if you take voice lessons, you will learn that some people don't really know how to breathe properly. And I was 25 and I was working at WGN in Chicago. And my old boss, Tom Langmeyer, who if he listens to this, he, I am forever grateful to him because he said to me, we, I sat in his office and he said, you have the ability from a writing and technical standpoint to be really good in this business, but you're never going to get there if you don't learn how to be better at delivering your voice on the air. I never even knew really what that meant. Honestly, I, I didn't have any concept of it. I mean, I remember in college sending my tape to a couple of people who said, you know, who sent me charts of diaphragmic, diaphragmic breathing. I didn't know what, I, I had no idea what they were talking about. Like this was a totally foreign concept to me. But when I sat in his office and he said, you know, you can't get to where you want to go unless you do this. Literally the next day I woke up and I Google searched voice lessons in Chicago, and I looked at reviews of like five people, and this one person, um, Jillian, who's been my voice teacher for years, uh, I called her and I was like, hey, I'm a radio broadcaster at WGN, do you, do you work with broadcasters? Like, I just figured they work with singers, like, I had no idea. Turns out they work with plenty of broadcasters, and plenty of people use a voice coach, did not know that. Um, and so I went. And now, honestly, if I listen back to tapes of myself from, I can't listen to it. I'm embarrassed. Truly, like, I can't, I can't listen to it. Um, and I think that my voice is, um, you know, I have to maintain it a lot. Um, you know, when I'm working, I do my warm ups, like, you're an athlete, you know, you, have you to, really like yeah. still to this day, yeah. you know, like you'll go in the bowels of the stadium and yeah. do your yaw. Yeah. Well, you not only that, but like during commercial breaks, I will hit the cough button. And if I feel like my voice isn't where it needs to be, I will, they don't hear it. Actually, one time I accidentally hit talk back and started doing my <laughs> voice exercises and my producer, my ear is like, what the hell are you doing? I was like, oh, sorry. Uh, nothing. Don't worry about that. I'm an idiot. Um, but yeah, so no, I, I, uh, it's something that you, I think anyone that isn't blessed with the incredible pipes that some of these guys have. And listen, some guys have such great baritone voices that they can basically just live off of that, right? They sound incredible and they can be whatever they want to be because they sound so good. But for me, it was always something where I knew I was going to have to work at it. And now I think I'm in a way better place um, thanks to the work that, that Jillian has helped me with. But additionally, I think that uh, it's something that continues to evolve, right? Like I think probably 10 years from now, I'll probably sound a little bit different than I did, you know, than I do now. So I think uh, anyone, I mean, not just in radio and television too, because I mean, listen, you know, a lot of people, when I started doing games for ESPN, people were like, well, how did you get these games? Like, what did you do? 
it was like I had some like key to a dark closet somewhere and like unlock the secrets of life. I, I like, sent Pharaoh pie. Yeah, right. Like, there's no, I mean, it, it's just, you know, I mean, obviously you, you have to have like some level of understanding of what you're doing, but beyond that, you know, they have to like what comes out of the speaker. I mean, ultimately that's what it is. And so if you don't, if, if the average person doesn't like the way you sound, take it from somebody who has had this experience, like don't take that personally, just be willing to understand it. So, I mean, it's just, uh, it's something you have to work at and something that you have to do. And I'm, I'm sort of like the try hard guy in general. And so when I started, I think um, I probably overcompensated a lot and people were probably listening to me on WGN when I was doing all these things to try to lower, lower isn't the right word, but like, I guess I was, but unintentionally just De- to deepen, yeah, not, deepen. not in like a lower sense, but like, yeah, I, there's no way to describe it. I'm motioning my hands in an audio form. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I thought I had to make, you know, I just sound like this, but I mean, you have to sound like you sound, but just with more resonance and more breath behind it. And it's all breath and it's all how you breathe. And I know now if I'm connected to my breath and I know when I'm not. And so like when I, the later years I was working at WGN when I'd been in doing these lessons for a couple of years, like one of the guys I used to work with used to make fun of me. He goes, oh, you're putting on your radio voice. And like off the air, I said to him, no, I'm connected to my actual voice. Like, this is what I should sound like if I knew what I was supposed to do three years ago. Yeah. So it is, it is a, it's a battle, um, but it's one worth taking up if this is something that you want to be doing. It's funny on my end because I have the problem where I will get too tense sometimes and my jaw will lock up and it ruins, like, how you sound vocally. So, like, I have stress balls I do really- in all of our equipment. So, yeah. like, there will just be, like, you'll open up the radio equipment, there's just stress balls. I'm like, what are these for? I'm like, yeah. And, like, in the middle yeah. of a game, I'll be like, uh, John, grab me one of those. For, I mean, just give me the, give me the ball. Um, yeah. And uh, it just, it, I think it's really funny. And then, yeah. um, but, I, but I know other people yeah. that we went to school with who, who said that they've used – I mean, this is – like, I'm talking about it now, and I really have never done this publicly, so kudos to you for on the play-by-play cast getting me to talk about this. But, like, honestly, like, it's not uh, – it's, I don't think it's something to be embarrassed about because I think a lot of people use them and everyone is just afraid to mention that, oh, you know, I've used a voice teacher. But I, as I've now learned, a lot of people use them. And so this is not something to be worried about because at first I thought, oh, well, I shouldn't tell anyone because this is me admitting that my voice isn't where it should be. And it's like, no, it, and it's also regional too, I think. You know, where you live, there's a certain way certain people sound. And so you're trying to sound like how other people sound yeah. in your area. And so you you compensate with your body to kind of adapt to the way that people sound in your region. And so you don't, you know, when, when you're a broadcaster, it's like you have to sound like you're from anywhere, right? Because there was a guy that I, that I had listened to tapes of his who has good, great pipes and younger than me and he has the voice to be really successful but he was from the New York area and had a very very thick New York accent and I said I know a lot of people from New York so I understand you but 
there are people that won't understand everything that you're saying. So you have the pipes to do it, but you need to learn how to enunciate. So he went to somebody to learn how to be better at enunciate. I mean, like Linda Cohn on SportsCenter is famous for talking about how she has like a really thick Long Island accent and has figured out how to speak in a very sort of, um, you know, layman kind of way where like anyone can understand. Like, I think a lot of people wouldn't even know that she has an accent because she has so adeptly learned how to speak in a very uh, relatable way to anyone that, that you know, lives in any region of this country. So um, it's important. I, I believe in it. I'm going to keep doing it. I don't think I should stop doing it. And I honestly think that when I don't do it for a month or two, I will notice that I am losing it. It's like anything else, right? Like if, if you're on a workout plan and then you stop working out, you lose your progress, right? So like... If you're training for a marathon and then you don't run for three months, you're not going to be in the same shape. If you are a broadcaster and you want to have, a, have voice quality maintained and you stop doing lessons or you stop maintaining your voice or you stop doing your exercises, you will be worse. So um, if you have the great pipes, I commend you. If you don't, I believe in it. So last question, because uh, Ball State has a game in 13 hours, and all I know about Appalachian State is they got a freshman from Iceland, um, so got some work to do here. But uh, <laughs> working at the national level, and I just think of this because I'm scrolling through Twitter today, yeah. and I saw somebody yelling at Adam Amin, um, why do you hate everybody's team? Uh, so, by the way, Adam is the best at handling this because he just, like, goes at I was saying, I honestly, I was saying this to Deanna right before we started this. I was like, Adam is great at handling people that think that they hate their team because he'll just like crush them while he's on the air which is amazing because like usually when I'm on the air I'm thinking of so many things that I can't do Twitter um but there are some broadcasters that are like on Twitter the whole game which they're incredible multitaskers and I commend you I cannot do it I have enough trouble figuring out what people are saying in my ears during a game um but no I mean I, I think uh the funny thing is is like if you're doing your job right you are talking about both teams equally probably or you're talking about the biggest story in the game and if you're a passionate fan then it means that you want the broadcaster on a national level to be talking about your team the entire time which is obviously not going to be what happens but they are fans which is short for fanatics and so i understand the mentality behind it and i don't honestly like at this point i don't the, the funniest part of the like you know why do you hate my team thing i didn't even get that stuff the, when I did radio and I was doing talk radio, I felt like I had the most like benign sports opinions and I would be told how much I suck multiple times on a daily basis, which they are, you're all right, I'm terrible, you're right. But when I do television, it's like a new world, like people are nice. They're like, oh, I love that story you told about this. Like I remember I did a game at Detroit Mercy um, a couple years ago um, against UIC, and I know you've done games there, so like you've, I'm sure you've heard about Titan Reggie. So we told this story about Titan Reggie, and we showed the banner for him and how he was this great fan of the Titans and was this beloved person in the Detroit Mercy community and, and what he meant to everybody. And, you know, there were three or four Detroit fans. I remember I got back to my hotel, and they tweeted at me, hey, thanks so much for 
mentioning Titan Reggie. We really appreciated it and meant a lot to our community. I was like, wow, that is so, I, I was touched. It was like, so nice. It's like, I'm used to getting off the air and being guilty like everybody else was scrolling through my Twitter to see like who ripped me, you know, who thinks I stink, like all this stuff. But, you know, I think, I, I want to say that you shouldn't care, but we all care. And everyone that says that they don't care is just lying because everybody wants to be liked. And so I'm not going to say that I don't care because I do care. And if I get ripped, I don't like it, but it's part of what we do. And I think what I've tried to reconcile in my brain is that all that really matters is that my bosses like what I'm doing. And if they don't like it and they email me, then I'm really going to be upset that I did something wrong. But assuming that that doesn't happen, you just can't, like, you can't get that worried about it because, you know, inevitably, if you're doing a good job, like, for instance, you know, Joe Buck takes so much heat from people on Twitter. I think Joe Buck is great. I think Joe Buck is one of the best broadcasters in the world, and that's why he does what he does. And, you know, people can say, well, you know, it's great that it helped him that Jack Buck is his dad, and that may all be true, but Joe Buck is great. And, like, Joe Buck took, maybe he took an opportunity that he got enhanced by the fact that his dad was Jack Buck, but Joe Buck is so good at what he does, and he deserves to do the World Series and the Super Bowls and the prime NFL games and all the stuff he does. And during the course of a three-hour game, you're going to have conversations about certain players. And if they, if it's not 100% positive or you're reporting on something that isn't completely glowing, you know, people are going to have opinions. But truthfully, I like doing games because I feel most of the time we don't have to do, you know, heavy um, negative stories and that we can tell positive stories about kids and positive stories about teams and for all the things that people want to poke into college sports and all the things that are inherently unfair or or scandalous or whatever at the end of the day and you know this because you're around them every day like they're still kids and they're still in college and they have cool stories and if you're willing to research it and learn about it you can tell them and that's honestly the thing that i like most about calling games is because we get to tell positive stories so if somebody hates that we told that story about that player then i'm sorry because i like telling stories about people jordan if people want to yell at you on twitter uh how do they find you at jordan burnfield on twitter although i just uh i just got an email with game notes for one of the games tomorrow and apparently i'm now jordan burnham uh it's not the ball state game is it no (laughs) um one of the games they put jordan burnham on the game notes so clearly i am a household name so thanks for having a, a big celebrity like me on your podcast well, and your wife so yes. yeah. and my well she's the bigger celebrity so it's the first two-person podcast we've ever had so yeah. this is great jordan thanks man yeah no problem that's jordan burnfield joining us here on pxp cast he worked with Corey alexander on the uh, charleston classic down in south carolina and uh their third man their sideline guy and third man in the booth on the last day was a guy by the name of noah savage and this didn't dawn on me initially, but it was cool because after we taped this podcast, Noah came and joined the table and sat down and we were talking until like one in the morning. Um, and Noah looks at me and and, and we just started talking and I, I uh, he said he played at Princeton and I was like, oh, that was my first job. Um, 
in broadcasting. I, I did stats for Tom Crickey, Don Crickey's son, uh, when he was the play-by-play guy on TV, Patriot 8 Media for Princeton in uh, in New Jersey. And uh, and then we had this realization that uh, I had done stats for his games when he was in college, which I thought was really funny. Uh, he goes, Noah, and I'm like, you're Noah Savage? So that was kind of cool. Small world. Uh, that basketball and broadcasting always somehow circles back around. Speaking of that conversation, too, by the way, um, we sat there after doing this interview, Noah, myself, Jordan, Jordan's wife, talking in the hotel bar in Charleston until, like, close to one in the morning. Um, And the bartender came over and joined us at one point, like, we just had a good time. The bartender was a former nuclear energy lobbyist in Washington, D.C. It was wild. Because we asked him like how long he'd been serving and, and tending bar there, and how long it, it was his bar, how long you know he had been in charge, how he learned so much about wine, and we said, well, "What did you do before this?" He was like, "Oh, I was a lobbyist for for nuclear energy," which is not something you hear every day. Uh, so anytime you're at a bar, ask the bartender what they did in their past life, because you never know what you might hear. <laughs> they might be a lobbyist for nuclear energy. I immediately felt less smart. Uh, anyway, if you want to follow Jordan Burnfield on Twitter, you can hit him up at Jordan Burnfield. Uh, Jordan, B-E-R-N-F-I-E-L-D. Jordan Burnfield, as it sounds. And uh, let him know you caught the pod and uh, that you enjoyed it and uh, hopefully learned something from it. Uh, a lot of fun to sit down with Jordan and do this one uh, with he and his wife. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Another conversation from Charleston coming your way uh, with the voice of the Wichita State Shockers. Stick around for that next week here on PXP Cast. We're out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.